theyeshiva.net. Thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us live. If you have any questions, comments, um, uh, relating to the topic of mental health, but more broadly, addictions, struggles, leave it in the question box. Uh, but Y.Y. Jacobson is somebody who, in my life, I found is incredibly passionate, compassionate, wise. I come from a long lineage, Rabbi Y.Y., of fans of yours. My grandmother, the first thing she does every morning is listen to your share. My father, on his commute to work, listens to yours, Maga share. And the first thing my shver ever told me, well, I, my shver is from Muncie. He's like, you got to go check out one of Rabbi Yawai's shiurim. So I'm part of this this legacy of of admirers, and it's incredible uh, to be on the same screen as you. This is this is uh, surreal. Thank you. Did you introduce yourself to the audience? I did a little bit. Moshe Shambran. I live in Maryland. I work on campus, the University of Maryland, trying to teach Torah to, to the Jews here. We got like 6,000 uh, Jewish students at University Amazing. of And um, I do some art on the side that's in the background. And Oh, that's your art? Yeah, some of it. So right the behind you is the Shei Shmuel. The Shei Shmuel. Shei Shmuel. It's the only painting in the world of the Shei Shmuel. I did it, as far as I know. I think it's a, but it's based, it comes from a picture. Yes, so it's based on the picture. I painted it. Yeah, the Shemish Shmuel was one of the great Hasidic masters from Poland. He lived in Sochachov. And I see the picture right behind Moshe, <laughs> the painting. So that's beautiful. He passed away in the 1920s, I believe. His son succeeded him, but his son was murdered by the Germans. Yeah, and I see on his right, we well, you know the Lubavitcher Rebbe. <laughs> right. And that's the Rebbe Yamalach of Lezhetsk. The, I was um, there, the resting place in Poland of one of the great masters of Elimelech of Luzhansk. Yeah, beautiful. Incredible. Okay, so this is your, your handwork. Your handiwork. Yes. yes, this one over here is Isidore Kaufman, a famous Hungarian painter. Yes, uh, yes, yes. We know um, Kaufman, but, yeah. But, but yeah, enough about me. We want to jump right into the questions here. We have incredible amount of questions coming in. Everyone could still leave the questions. You can leave it on the uh, in the comments, on the question box. Um, let's jump right in. We are recording it. Curious... And I see there was also questions that came in before I read quite right. a few questions. Right, right, right. So we'll start with some of the pre-submitted questions, but people could submit live if we want. Okay. Um, you can hear me and see me clearly, Reb Moshe. I could, I could. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Still, still can't believe we're on the same screen. Okay, so the first question is, from the perspective of Tyra and Hasidus, can fear or anxiety ever manifest in a way? Or... Is fear, no matter how rational, an indication of a lack of trust in Hashem? Well, that's a wonderful question. Does fear always mean that you don't trust God and that's why you're overtaken by fear? Or can there be, let's call it a healthy fear, a productive fear, a good fear? So that's a great question. And the answer to that is absolutely. In fact, you may be surprised to hear that one of the mitzvahs of the Torah, one of the 613 commandments of the Torah is Yiras Shamayim, to have fear. <laughs> it's a verse in Deuteronomy, as Hashem Tira, you should fear your God. We call it Yirat Shamayim, fear of heaven. But the question is, what is this fear? How do we define it? How do we understand it? So fear is not always destructive. Sometimes fear is not only 
good and productive, but sometimes it's holy, it's sacred. So let me just define this distinction between the two fears. When the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, Israel Baal Shem Tov, he passed away in 1760 on Shavuos. And he revolutionized the landscape of Jewish thought. He was orphaned at a very young age by both of his parents. And he became one of the most uh, inspiring figures in Jewish history, founder of the whole Hasidic movement and its teachings. When he was five years old, his father was on his deathbed. His father's name was Eliezer. And what do you tell a five-year-old right before you're leaving the world? And soon his wife would also die. So he would be an orphan from his father and his mother. And the story is that his father said, Yisraelik, I want you to know two things. Number one, don't fear anybody or anything in the world besides God. And then his father passed away. And these two messages of his father on his deathbed became the two pillars that guided the Baal Shem Tov, who became, as I said, one of the most extraordinary leaders and impactors of the Jewish world until this very day. So his father gave him these two messages, probably the greatest gift that a father can give a child, especially if he's not going to be around, not to fear anybody or anything but God. And what he meant by that was that if you fear God, you don't have to fear anybody or anything else. Because naturally, we do have to fear. How can I not fear anybody or anything? I should be afraid. There's always somebody to be afraid of. Even if you're very successful and you're independent and you're autonomous and you're your own boss, but there's always somebody I have to impress, right? There's always somebody who has some power over me. So I'm going to be afraid. How could I not be afraid? But only when you can really inculcate within yourself a genuine fear of God, then you really don't have to be afraid of anybody or anything else. Now, what does it mean to fear God? What is this fear? What is this fear of God? Why should I fear anybody? You know, we tell people, don't fear. Fear is not healthy. But there's some fears that are very, very good. For example, very simple. If somebody tells me I'm afraid to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, is that a good fear? I'm like, yes. It's a very, very good fear. I'm afraid to jump over the Empire State Building. That's good, good. <laughs> I'm afraid to play with certain items that are very dangerous. Okay, thank God. I'm glad you're afraid. This is not a bad fear. This is not a paralyzing fear. This is a fear that means you're healthy. You're allergic. I'm afraid to eat food that can kill me. Yeah, that's good. So fear of God on the most basic, basic level is understanding yeah, that Hashem has told us that there's certain things you want to be afraid of. You want to be afraid of things that are immoral. You want to be afraid of hurting somebody else. You want to be afraid of things that can damage your soul, that can hurt your loved ones. That's a very, very good fear, even in 2021. I wish that everybody has a little bit of that dosage of fear. There is also deeper levels of fear. When you speak about fear of God, the great mystics talk about fear in the sense of awe, reverence, respect, the feeling of humility in the presence of greatness. Mark Twain said when God created the Grand Canyon, he didn't create the adjectives with which to describe it. 
sometimes we're in the presence of greatness and you just feel the sense of awe and your ego melts away or gets diminished. So that's type, that's that's a deeper, it's called yiras haraimimus, a fear of exaltedness, a sense of deep reverence. And in life, it's a great blessing to be able to have that ability to be moved in that way, where I feel like my ego is reduced and I'm just mesmerized by by that presence of greatness. That's amazing. What about then the second part was anxiety. Somebody has anxiety, they're worried. Um, is that indicative of just a lack of trust in Hashem? And if That's a great question. Hashem? That's a very different question. And the answer to that is absolutely not. To tell everybody that has anxiety that it means you don't have a relationship with God is simply not true. And if somebody does say that to you, they may not know one of two things. They may not know anything about anxiety. <laughs> and they may not know anything about fear of God. Fear of God doesn't mean I don't have anxiety. Some people have anxiety for various reasons. Sometimes it's a genetic. Sometimes it's based on nurture. Sometimes it's based on certain events. Sometimes it's based on something internal. Sometimes it's based on a trauma. It's Anxiety is not always a choice that you could just snap your fingers and say, you know, if I would just think positively and if I would just have fear of God, I would get rid of all my anxiety. Do not feel guilty and start blaming yourself that because you have anxiety means you're not a good person, you're not a good Jew. Yes, sometimes a person's faith and resilience and relationship with God can eliminate all anxiety. And if that's the situation, you should certainly strive for it. But you have to respect the fact that sometimes anxiety could be a very deep condition, sometimes a chronic condition. And even all the teachings in the world don't eliminate it. And you have to respect that. Fear of God can help you deal with the anxiety. It tells you that God is here with you, that at your core, you're not anxious, that at your core, you're part of the divine. So a relationship with Hashem helps you confront the anxiety, not be afraid of the anxiety, not let you be defined by the anxiety, realizing there's something deeper than your anxiety. But some we have to have compassion and respect towards our anxiety. It may be rooted in a deep space, and you may need time and healing to get rid of it. And sometimes it's far from easy task. It's incredible. Um, there's so much in there. I'd love to... Uh, it's it's a very it's a very intense subject. Let me tell you something, Moshe, and everybody who's listening. Uh, today's day and age, I would say, it's one of the top struggles of people: anxiety. It's a funny thing because, in many ways, our generation has been blessed with certain gifts that other generations didn't even dream of. Right in terms of a lifespan, in terms of prosperity, in terms of opportunity, in terms of freedoms. Not that we don't have our share of tragedies and pain, we do. But compared to previous generations, you know, if you would describe to somebody a hundred years ago what we have today, it's like, wow, they will be walking around happy. <laughs> they will all be happy. First of all, we have so much more time. You know, the industrial revolution and everything, just working on a computer, working with, you know, we take for granted phones and planes and all these types of things. So we have so many opportunities, but it did not eliminate anxiety. It's fascinating. Some say it increased anxiety. I don't know if it increased or this, but it's a fascinating thing that anxiety today is a very, very common thing. 
I get lots of emails a day and questions, and I have to say a huge amount of them are focused on anxiety. So this means that it's it's one of the great challenges of our times. But as we know, in Judaism, every challenge is an opportunity. So somehow, God is giving us all a gift. And the gift is that it's our mission to cleanse our generation from anxiety. I think that the trauma of the last 2,000 years of Jewish history are now coming to the fore because we are the ones who were chosen to confront it and extricate ourselves from it to the best of our ability. So I know that it's often debilitating and very difficult, but I tell all of you and myself and all of us, I also have anxiety, that um, we really, don't be afraid of your anxiety. It's an alarm clock. Don't hate your alarm clock. (laughs) Your alarm clock is here to wake you up, to make you alert to what you have to work on. Anxiety is here to point me towards the direction where I have to fulfill my mission in life and things I have to confront. So it's difficult, but it's also a gift. I know it's a difficult gift. It's a challenging gift. But the first thing is don't be afraid of it. Number two, know that at your core, you're never damaged. Your soul is not anxious at its core. Your soul is free. Your soul is happy. Your soul is uninhibited because it's a piece of God. And just like God is not anxious at his core, you're also not anxious at your core. There is freedom and infinity and infinite reservoirs of joy and confidence and happiness at the core of your soul. The anxiety is something that came into our lives as a result of something internal, something external, something from childhood, something from later years, something that may be pre-verbal, you know, a childhood wound, or maybe other aspects, and you have to find the right people and top people to be able to help you with it, with God's grace. But never define yourself by that, and never feel that you are essentially destined to live a life of eternal anxiety without anything to do. It may be a long process, but remember at your core, your wholesomeness is more powerful than all of your anxiety. Wow. It's amazing. One of the things that you said stuck out is like our generation is charged with addressing that anxiety. Well, uh, one of the questions that I had was, if you look in a lot of the literature, you look in the Gemara, you look in the Rishayim, and they go, you don't see a lot of, at least it wasn't called anxiety. Um, And the truth is maybe, like the Rav is saying, they didn't necessarily have the luxury to be contemplating their mental health and their state of mind, they were trying to survive. And um, especially in the 20th century and now that- Even before, even before, if you go visit the way they lived just 200 years ago, 150 years ago, I once went with my son's class to see how they lived in the 1800s. And you realize people simply didn't have the time or the luxury, the mental space to think about their emotions. You know, the whole field of psychology is a pretty new development. In, in olden days, it didn't even have a name. It was like a branch of philosophy. Understanding people was a branch of general philosophy. Psychology has become a self-contained discipline literally in recent times, just a little more than a century ago. And of course, the father of psychoanalysis was a Jew named Schleimel Freud or Sigmund Freud. I should also mention that just a few days ago, 
Dr. Aaron Beck passed away, a Jew, 100 years old, and he's the founder of cognitive therapy, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which has made a major contribution in uh, the field of psychology and in many ways differed from Sigmund Freud and its founder, Dr. Beck, a very uh, brilliant Jewish man who dedicated his life to help people through that particular method. Um, he just literally passed away a few days ago, Dr. Beck. And you're dealing with a branch that is very, very Jewish. <laughs> they say that uh, the, the old joke is that uh, Sigmund Freud could have made a minion for Mincha every day and a sheer dafyoimi with the with his minion of people that were working with him. The problem is that none of them believed in God, besides Carol Jung, who was the only guy, Gentile among them. But, uh, but the point, and Carol Jung, by the way, said in his, in his 80th birthday, that the, the key, the, the foundational points of his system of psychology, he received, he learned from Rabbi Doiv Ber of Mizrich, the Maggot of Mizrich. So he attributed the core, the nucleus of his ideas to the successor of the Balshamtiv at his 80th, 80th birthday. I saw the interview with them. Um, the fascinating, but that's just for a separate evening. But the point I'm making here is that I think that certainly they did not have time for the emotions that we have. Survival, and literally survival was difficult. The lifespan was also very short. You know, most people died at the age of 40. If you lived 45, 50, you were like, uh, you were blessed. There were people who lived long, but it was very, very rare. Because between infectious diseases and hunger and violence, most people did not live a long life. So that's also a major part of it, you know. The expectations were completely different. And how many children did not survive childhood, you know, childhood mortality. So therefore, in a way, people's had, people had to crystallize their priorities much more. They had to be much more focused on what you're living for because there was no time, no time to waste. I should say, however, that in our literature, there, there are quite a few references made to the concepts of joy and anxiety and depression and melancholy especially in the Midrashic literature, the Kabbalistic literature, and the Hasidic literature is full of it. Hasidic literature only begins 300 years ago because the Baal Shem Tov was born 1698. So it's a little more than 300 years ago. And that's when it parallels with the Enlightenment. The, Enlight the European Enlightenment begins at the end of the 17th century, literally parallel to the Baal Shem Tov. And that wasn't a mistake. It was certainly a providential and the Enlightenment really created an era where people focused more on the individual. Power went from religion, from the church, from the king to the individual, the search for self, the search for science, the search for logic. So as that was developing, Judaism also developed a tremendous focus on what you might call psychology, the internal self, both in the Muslim movement, which was centered in Lithuanian, in Lithuanian communities and the Hasidic movement, which was centered in Ukraine and Poland and ultimately also Lithuania and Hungary and much of Eastern Europe. But today, there's no question that if you divorce Judaism from, uh, from a focus on inner resilience and happiness and serenity, you lose a lot of people because people are really struggling with this. You see it also in marriages. You know, uh, 
I, I can't tell you, you know, how many marriages are struggling today. And people say, what happened? What happened suddenly? People have been married for thousands of years. And I'll tell you one of the things that I see. Emotions have not been a major part of defining your marriage at other times. It's like, I don't care how you feel. We're married. We have a life to live. Take out the garbage and cook dinner and do the laundry. You know, it's, but today, emotions are very real. And if I'm miserable in my marriage, I do not want to be in that place. And people also feel that they have choices. I don't want to be, I don't want to be in a miserable marriage. I want to be in a happy marriage. Now, a lot of people are lamenting this. They're saying, you know, we're just a bunch of spoiled brats, <laughs> self-centered narcissists. And they may have a point. I personally feel very differently. I think that these are all signs of the gula, of redemption. Because redemption means that there has to be fusion between the body and the soul, between the mind and the heart, between a practical moral life and an emotional serene life. Redemption means there is complete dvekus, complete alignment with the divine. And when there's complete alignment with the divine, I'm not frustrated. I'm not miserable. I am happy. I'm not just a soldier who obeys, but internally I am completely alienated. That's not gaula. That's gaulus. That's an exile mentality. Gaula mentality is fusion. Fusion of all the parts of our being with our higher purpose, with God and with each other. And I think that's what our generation is yearning for. So I know people are sometimes pessimistic, but I, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I see in it a very genuine and spiritual transcendent yearning for fusion. So I celebrate it. That's incredible. I love that, that the psychology and the self-awareness is the, the synthesis yeah. Yeah. of our trauma. And that's yes, real. Now, wow. as, oh, as always, wow. as always, every gift comes with a challenge. People can, can, can misconstrue it, like everything, everything. You know, nuclear energy can, can light up the world. It can destroy the world. So whenever there is a focus on self-awareness, there is always the danger of self-worship, narcissism. I become obsessed with myself. You know, individualism trumps every other consideration. That's a danger. But the, the, the solution is not to that is not to go back to horse and buggies. <laughs> you know, let's all use horse and buggies. Let's not use telephones anymore. And let's write letters. And I'll write a letter to Australia and I'll get an answer six, in six months or eight months. Right? There is nostalgia. No question. There is nostalgia. And somebody once told me, eh, nostalgia today is not what it used to be like. <laughs> and we have to always be aware of the dangers of self-worship. But self-awareness is part of our, what we call, avoid today. Because if there is fusion, there has to be self-awareness. It can't be that I serve God, but my internal self is not present. So I dive in, I put one foot ahead of another foot, and I'm like a soldier, and I do the right thing, but internally I'm alienated. It's not, uh, who said, one of the great Hasidic masters, I don't remember who, he said something very profound. He said, when Judaism began, there was a tremendous focus on space. God says, there's going to be a tabernacle for Asur Mikdash V'Shechanti B'Soch. I'm going to dwell in that space. And that was the space. You couldn't go anywhere else to bring your offerings. And then there was a Beis HaMikdash in Jerusalem, and that became the space. Then the temple got destroyed, and the big focus was now time. Not so much a space, because Jews were all over the place, and there were shuls everywhere, but the focus was time. Shabbos, Yom Tif, 
Shachris, Mincha, Mayrif. This is a development of the Second Temple era, times for prayer and so forth. And Shabbos and Yom Tov, of course, is biblical, but the idea of times during the day when you connect to God. And then he said, later, when the Baal Shem Tov came about, the main focus became not space and not time. Focus became the person. You have to find God within your self-awareness. In Sefer Yitzira, the great Kabbalistic work, there's Olam, Shana, Nefesh, space, time, and presence of soul. So in the beginning, it was a focus on space. Later, the main focus became time. And now the focus became nefesh. Of course, there are spaces like synagogues. There are times like Shabbos and holiday. But the real focus is nefesh. You have to turn your own identity into a conduit for divine infinity. So self-awareness is a tremendous step in that direction. Amazing. Okay, I want to move on related to it. It's how does a person differentiate between having an addiction versus just having a behavior that they need to work on? That's a great question. Addiction, in, in Hebrew, there's a word called taiva. Taiva means a craving, an instinctive inclination to something that may be potent. And then there's something we call addiction, which today in Hebrew they call hitmakrut, which means you're sold. And I think it defines it very well. When I'm really addicted to something, I really lose control. That's why they call it a disease. To the point that my rational prefrontal cortex doesn't function anymore. I can miss my child's birthday. I can miss me and my spouse's anniversary. I can miss a Hanukkah party. I can miss something that somebody who's responsible and caring would never miss because my addiction turns me into a dysfunctional person. I'm lying. I'm running away from everybody and myself. I really lose control. My, my, my brain, a certain part of my brain is fried. And that's why the first step of the 12 steps is acknowledging that I don't have control. I really have to surrender. Then there's a taiva. A taiva means it's a craving. It's a craving. You know, some of us have a sweet tooth. We see chocolate. We see chocolate. It's hard for us to resist. We see potato chips. It's hard for us to resist. We see a Danish. It's hard for us to resist. I'm giving examples that I have to deal with. And there's other examples. But is it something that if, you know, you really, somebody once said, he said, uh, what did he say? He says, I can resist everything in life besides temptation. So, uh, Taiva is we all have our temptations, but it's not to a point where I can't think straight, where I can't resist it anymore. It's a struggle, but I'm in control. And both of them are difficult, but you have to distinguish between the two. Because when somebody is a full-blown addict, then it's a very, very serious situation because they are, uh, they're in a very, very bad place. And sometimes, till they hit rock bottom, they're not ready to rise up. And really, there is a very deep yearning there for spirituality that they're not filling, they're not filling the void, and therefore they are desperately trying to hold on to some fake oxygen that they think will help them numb their pain. It can't really numb their pain because it's not what they're looking for. So you have to know where you are, you know, and sometimes you really need a, some, a different level of help. So I want to ask about that, about the addiction part, meaning Bechira, free will, free choice is a, is a big thing. In, uh, in Jewish thought. And somebody whose prefrontal cortex is obscured by a chemical uh, dependency doesn't, 
I, I would see, I would think has lost an element of that here. So why would let's say Hashem create this um, the, this concept, this phenomena, uh, this disease of addiction? Um, like what, what's that good spark? I, you were touching on it that it's it's you know it's a hits spiritual people. Could you could you expand on just like a general overview on addiction? Um, yeah. Uh, yes, you're touching on a very very serious issue, and, and and really this deserves you know a few days or a few years. But just just very very briefly, um, it's what God tells Moses about Pharaoh. There's going to be a point where he will he will not have choice anymore. It's it's a point. It's like when you when you get drunk, you know, when you get drunk, and once you're inebriated, you're just not functioning on a rational level, and it's very very tragic. But this is really the key. The addict. I heard this from Dr. Tversky, the great Dr. Tversky who just died a few months ago, who was the big expert on addiction for sixty years. Dr. Abraham Tversky, Rebbe Avram Yeshua Heschel, who was a psychiatrist and a Hasidic teacher and a very interesting, colorful man. And I heard this from him in Boca Raton a few years ago. We did a Shabbaton together for recovery, people in recovery. And he told me, you should know, that he told this to me directly, 60 years of my experience have taught me that people who are addicted are usually the most spiritual ones among us. And what he said was as follows, that everybody is dealing with hypocrisy. Everybody is dealing with challenges and adversity in life and falsehood in life and lies. But he says people who are not so spiritual can just somewhat ignore it. But people who are deeper and more sensitive, when they have that void, they can't just ignore it. It creates such a profound sense of emptiness and pain that they need to resort to extra destructive measures to numb the pain. And when the pain is not numb, they have to increase those destructive measures. I need more alcohol. I need more drugs. I need more insane websites. I need more clubs, whatever I'm doing, in order to, 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 to just get me out of my self-consciousness, get me out of my ego, get me out of my, my pain, my insecurity. Really, it's not going to help because what I'm really looking for is there's an emptiness that can only be filled by God. Nothing else. Nobody can fill it. Not money, not women, not men, no websites, no alcohol, no gambling, no cocaine, nothing, nothing, not validation, not attention, no physical pleasures. They're all interesting stuff that can be enjoyable and minimal, sometimes in particular particular measures of it, and in certain contexts, in certain contextual situations. But the core, he says, you must have a relationship with God. And when the addict goes into recovery, the void doesn't go away. It stays there forever. He's always going to have to deal with it because addiction is really the soul crying out for a real, real deep relationship with transcendence. Until the addict doesn't get that, he will never be able to escape it. You're not going to fill that void. That void is going to be there. Either you will find God and you will constantly have that relationship that will help you confront that void 24 hours a day and save you from self-destruction, or you will not find him, and you will constantly go to the next high, which is really just take me out of my misery. And, you know, why God does this, I think this is maybe the ultimate sign of Bechira, the fact that the human being really has to realize that our greatest gift of choices to choose to be who we really are. 
And who are we really? We are really divine creatures. We are not animals. We are not immoral. We were created to be the manifestation of God in this world. And that's my ultimate choice, to realize that. And nothing else, you know, let me say it in different words. When we're children, we know this. We're all looking for love. And then when I feel that I can't get that love, what happens? I substitute it with this search for attention. I just want attention. I just want validation. I just want something to make me feel good. It's not going to help. I need real love. I need real relationships with myself, with people, and with my creator. So, that's incredible. So the 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 search. It sounds like, if, I, if I'm understanding, the addiction is less about how it's how it's manifesting and, and the behavior that it's uh, that it's bringing about. But the root of it, the root of it's coming from this this great yeah. yearning for for something for something deep. So yeah. then how do how do we? Let's say for ourselves, if we're gonna prevent. Fall, I mean, of course, if somebody's in a, a, a pattern, they're they're stuck in addictive behavior. Um, there, there's places for help. There's there's therapists. There's recovery centers. I know one right here, in Maryland Avenues Recovery Center, great place. What what about somebody that's wants to prevent falling into that uh, behavior? So they have this great yearning. So it, or or for our children, if we want to. Our children are growing up in, in the world as it is today, and we want to hopefully uh, uh, prevent them from falling into such a, uh, a negative way of, of filling that yearning or trying to fill it. So what are some practical ways we could uh, avoid that? What an important question. What an important question. We have to recognize the following. Addiction is not the problem. <laughs> Addiction is the solution. <laughs> When people say addiction is the problem, they're missing the point. Addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the solution that the addict is using to help him or her escape their misery momentarily. We want to understand what's the problem. The addiction is not the problem. The addiction is where he's running. Why is he running there? Why is she running there? Because there's a problem. That's what we have to address. That's much harder. It's easy to turn addiction into the enemy, but addiction is the solution. Addiction is their best friend. We want to understand what's the problem that's driving them to addiction. That's much harder because now we have to address ourselves, not them. <laughs> as long as addiction is the enemy, that's great. You know, we have an enemy called Hitler. We have an enemy called Nasrallah. We have an enemy called Ahmadinejad and Rawani. And we have another enemy called addiction. Great. At least we know the enemy. But if addiction is the solution and they're running to that solution because it's a problem, now I have to look into me. <laughs> I have to look into me. What's happening in my house? What's happening in my heart? What's happening in my soul? What's happening in my family? What's happening in my parenting? What's happening in my school? What's happening in my community? That takes a lot of introspection. We need to be able to address every one of our children in a very meaningful and real and authentic way for them to feel connected, for them to be able to feel their value, their dignity. Every child needs attachment in a very deep place. They need the four S's. They have to feel safe, secure, seen, and soothed. This is critical. 
this is the greatest antidote to running to addiction as the solution. Because when I don't have resilience and I don't have attachment and I'm feeling this terrible void and this terrible pain, especially if there was abuse or another trauma, so I have this gaping, gaping void that I have to escape and addiction is a wonderful, fake and superficial solution. And the greatest antidote to that is attachment, connection, attachment, attachment, attachment with our children, with our students, with our spouses. You know, that they note in research today, there's a famous quote that the antithesis of addiction is not sobriety. Not sobriety. We used to think it's sobriety. Proof is your 84-year-old grandmother breaks her hip, God forbid, goes to the hospital. <laughs> they give her drugs, including cocaine sometimes with a different name. After three weeks, she should become a full-blown addict. But she doesn't. She goes home, and she's fine. What happened? The answer is she has 20 grandchildren jumping on her when she comes home with welcome home, with welcome bubby signs. The antithesis to addiction is not sobriety. The antithesis to addiction is connection. Connection. That is, that's it. The first thing God says is not good in the Torah. What's the first thing that's not good? Loi toiv. The whole creation is good. Toiv. God saw everything is good. If you go to Genesis, the first thing he says is not good. It's not good for Adam, it's not good for man, for a human being to be alone. The loneliness, the sense of loneliness is what causes that sense of detachment. I'm not attached with anybody. When I'm not attached, the void is too painful. And I need to look for somebody to soothe me, whatever that somebody or something is. And that's what the addict has to understand. Don't allow your void to be soothed by things that will not fill your void. They will just exasperate and aggravate your void. You need to find that which what you, you you need to pursue that which you're really searching for, not the distractions. Don't go to distractions. Distractions will be very disappointing. They're easy, but they're disappointing. They will fail you. You want to confront the real emptiness. Amazing. Wow. Okay, we're, we're, we're running out of time. I have a list here of 20-something pre-submitted questions and we have a whole bunch coming in. Um, maybe we can do one last one. Should we do one more? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, a lot of these questions are just hard to read. I don't know how the Rob sees these emails coming in every day. There's just so much pain and uh, it could be overwhelming, which is another question of like, how do we deal with this feeling of overwhelming uh, yeah. pain and uh, this one, I guess it's related. It's it's uh, uh, coming from a mother who says, I feel sick saying this because I love my children dearly, but I hate life with kids. Um, I feel like that my, my pre-child life was, was great and awesome. Now that I'm here, I'm just completely overwhelmed. I've lost myself in the process. I'm busy with my kids. I'm busy with, with uh, running a household and I just don't have time for myself. I just feel overwhelmed by all my my obligations. Um, I feel this myself in my own life. I, we have chakras and learning and the family and the job and everything just increases and increases. And, and it's like feeling overwhelmed at times. I'm like, how do I juggle this? What's the, um, what's, uh, how do we, how do we uh, navigate this? Yeah. Okay. So 
Well, what's the conclusion of her question? It's very hard for me with children, and and what's the question? Um, I didn't know how hard this was going to be. Now I'm here. I feel stuck. What can I do? Okay, so that's that's a very serious question. I feel stuck. What can I do? She's not just saying, you know, give me advice because it's overwhelming. It's like I really don't want this life. Like I feel really stuck. So I think the first thing is it's important to validate these emotions and have compassion for them. You know, some people just organically, they gravitate to a life with children. It's their dream come true. And the more children, you know, bring them on, just, just bring them on. And, and they, they somehow come to life, certain people. And it's amazing. You know, there's a woman I know here in my community and she told me, you know, my dream was just always to have another child, another child. I love pregnancy. I love delivery. I love birth. I love nursing. I just loved it. She told me she has a lot of children. Thank God more than a minion, <laughs> and she wanted more. She, she tried to have more. <laughs> so, you know, that's amazing, and it's incredible, and, you know, you have to salute these people, and God bless them, and they should have all the strength and stamina. They're amazing. they're amazing. But not everybody's like that. So the first thing is it's important, you know, not to feel guilty about the emotions you have, because, yes, a life with children is a different type of life. There's a reason that in the secular world, so many people are opting out of marriage and out of having children because a life of raising children is a life of incessant commitment, dedication, sacrifice. You know, your nights are different. Your days are different, especially when you're a mother. <laughs> Fathers still uh, there's a famous there's a famous interpretation of the Haksava Kabbalah it says that Leah had a son Reuven and then a son Shimon and then when she had her third son Levi Levi she said now my husband will join me and she named her third son Levi which means joining so some of the commentators say maybe humorously she said when she had the first baby I can hold him in my right arm the second baby I can hold in my left arm what happens with the third baby so now I need my husband. Finally, he's going to realize that he's not a bachelor anymore. So sometimes for men, it takes another few years to realize that they're not bachelors and they can't just run to shul or to work whenever they want or go skiing or other forms of recreation whenever they want because you're a parent. So I think it's important just to validate. Yes, there's a lot of inhibited. There's, your life is inhibited. You can't leave without a babysitter and you may not be able to get a babysitter and it may not be good to get a babysitter and you know it. And it's a different life, and it's important to acknowledge that, and it's important to have compassion and not to judge it. After you do that, now you have to make a very serious decision and say, okay, so what do I really want? Do I really, really want to say goodbye to my family and say goodbye to my children? I have a friend, he told me, that he went the other day to a meditation meeting. He's very involved in that, mindfulness. And he said that the leader of the meeting is a Buddhist. And he got up, he got up at the meeting and he said, I had to be true to myself. So I told my wife that I need to get divorced, even though I love her and I love my children, because I have to be true to myself. And this person tells me I respected him so much. And that moment I lost all respect for him. Why? Not because he has that feeling. Because... It shows how spirituality can also be very selfish. Because ultimately, you have a wife and you have little children. 
You want to meditate, fine. But really deep down, this is the value of Judaism. To be able to know what ultimately long-term is the right thing for you. When you're 100 years old, enjoying the beach in Florida and looking back at your life, what decision will you respect in yourself more? The decision to say goodbye to your wife and children so you could go biking in New Zealand for six years and nobody ever bothering you again? Or the decision to remain married, to be there for your children? Which each decision has its pros and its cons. But deep down, Judaism, I think, was a very powerful tool to tell people that at the end of your life, your deepest and greatest joy and achievement will be the fact that you were there for your family. Because rationally, it's hard. Emotionally, it's hard. But ultimately, ultimately, the way God made us, our deepest, deepest core values is that we don't want to abandon our children. We don't want to. So have compassion for the struggle. But then realize that you have an ability to choose. Every time you wake up with your child or you put your child to bed or you give your child a bathtub, a bath, don't do it from a place of resentment and anger. There's a time to say, yes, I could have had another life. I wanted another life. But now let it be a choice. What do I mean by a choice? A choice means that you're present. You say, you know what? But there is, this is the life that I'm choosing now with every fiber of my being. And therefore, I'm going to give it all I got. And when you do that, I believe that as time progresses, you will not regret this choice. Have compassion for other choices. Appreciate the fact that you have other dreams and there are difficulties. True. But now, from a sober, lucid place, ask yourself, in your deepest, deepest core, what do you want to do? Do you really ab- want to abandon those kids? And then make a real choice. And when you make that choice, go into it with your full presence. And I should also just say that it is important, though, to take time for yourself, even with children. Whatever that means. Maybe you have to go to sleep an hour earlier and wake up an hour before them and go for a run or journal or dance or exercise, or pray, or meditate, or learn, or join my classes Monday morning, 7.30 (laughs) a.m. on the yeshiva.net, or do something else. But it's important to nurture yourself. Motherhood doesn't mean that there's nothing else in existence outside of motherhood. That's not humanly possible. For some people, maybe. You know, it's important for you to nurture yourself, your spiritual self, your physical self, your emotional self, because that will make you a far better spouse and a far better mother and a far better father. Amazing. Wow. And that's just, uh, uh, Rev mentioned, uh, be true to yourself. Like that was the reason that he left was be true to yourself. And that's a very common refrain. It's very, very common. I want to be true to myself and therefore I'm getting divorced. Now, right. or, I got or, it. Or and I understand it because he doesn't have a tire. He doesn't have anything to guide him. And being true, but I tell you, I tell you that in 20 years, 30 years, he's going to look back you will not be proud of this decision. You will not be proud of this decision. It's easy. It's very spiritual. But ultimately, I'm not judging him because I understand the culture where he comes from. And he really may think he's doing the right thing. And as this person told me, he's a nice guy. He's soft. He's a soft, nice, mushy guy. But ultimately, we understand that in life, we're all connected. And for a father to say goodbye to children who are small, they're young, and you're raising them, 
Is this really, really what's going to satisfy you spiritually? Really? You know, I think that many years from now, when he'll look back, he's going to say, this was one of the mistakes of my life. And now I know people will say to me, I'm going to get emails, why are you judging? Maybe for him it's the right thing. I'm not judging anybody here. I'm saying that the way the Torah teaches us about a human being, which God designed, so God knows about a human being, is that certain things are so deeply embedded in us. And to separate that and to make believe it doesn't exist may be very short-sighted. You'll meditate, your wife won't bother you, your kids won't bother you, but it may be a very something you're going to regret because it wasn't a miserable marriage. It's not like his wife, he said his wife is a great, great person. It's just where I am right now, she's not part of that. Maybe you have to become a little larger than yourself yourself, and not allow your spirituality to become an egotistical uh, exercise. So these are things I think we all have to think about in our own lives. You know, spirituality can become very egotistical. And ultimately, we're not about egos. We are servants of God, and that's when we are the most happy, when we do and fulfill our mission. We are miserable when we don't fulfill our mission because we're designed to be conduits for God, not to be, uh, not just to be people focused on, you know, what I want right now. It's, it's, it's a very superficial pleasure. And it could be very practical. Let's say I wake up in the morning and my wife is struggling. Three kids are screaming and I want to go Davin Shafras and, Learn the daf be'iyeg marashi taisvis. Learn a shir from shiva.net, and then is that just me doing my egotistical thing and feeling spiritual? When in the meantime, uh, maybe I should stay back, and that's uh, that's going to one of times. one of the great spiritual teachings of the great masters was service of God does not always have the same look. Sometimes it means going to synagogue and sometimes it means staying home. Sometimes it means opening a book and sometimes it means closing a book. There's the famous story about the Alter Rebbe, the Baal HaTanya, founder of Chabad Rebbe Shnei Zaman of Liadi. He was the knight of Yom Kippur. He was in the talus praying Kol Nidre and he, threw off, he, he took off his talus and he left the shul. He was living in Liazhne, Belarus. And they said he went to the end of the town there was a broken home, and there was a woman who has given birth. There was a newborn baby, and the family decided, Yom Kippur, they want to go to Shul. But he felt that she was desperately yearning for hot soup for herself and the baby. And it was the night of Yom Kippur. He, co- he made a fire, and he cooked the soup, and he fed it to her. So I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I heard this myself. He said, okay, it's a basic law. If somebody's life is in danger... You have to violate Yom Kippur. What's the big, what's the, what's the, why is it such a unique story? And he said the uniqueness of the story was that in the middle of Kalnidra and Yom Kippur, he felt, he felt the anguish of this woman. It's not that somebody made a Hatzalah call, they said, so he went. He felt, in other words, in the highest of highs, he felt the anguish of a young mother who gave birth and its hungry baby. And that's the idea. The idea is that serving God doesn't mean that I right now go to shul. Maybe that's exactly what it means, but maybe now it means the exact opposite thing. Maybe it means that I don't go to shul.
You know, you never. It's a very, very, it's a very delicate thing, because if it always means the same thing, I'm going to say this a little bluntly. Then it means I'm not worshiping God. I'm worshiping my comfort zone. If God always looks the same way every day, it's probably not God. <laughs> it's probably your your comfort zone that you worship. You call it God. <laughs> and the reason is because God has no image. If God has no image, it means he's unpredictable. So what God wants for me today may be the exact opposite of what he wanted for me yesterday. And and blessed are the people who don't get stuck. Their religion doesn't become an exercise in stagnation, smugness, and emotional paralysis. It's just like with children. What God wants from you regarding one child may be the exact opposite of what he wants from you regarding another child. So I can't live that way. And the answer is, well, living with God means first and foremost living with quantum mechanics. Living with quantum mechanics means you live with paradox. We're not afraid of paradoxes. We're not afraid of paradoxes. God has no image. No image means he can be a particle and he can be a wave. Not only he, even light is a particle and a wave. So even creation is paradoxical. Certainly the creator has no fixed image. So whenever Judaism becomes too fixed, be careful. <laughs> right, maybe a critique if everybody in the school or the system or the community is trying to come out in one certain image. Listen, uh, listen, there's something called halacha. Judaism cherishes structure and discipline and schedule. There's a time for more, there's morning and there's afternoon and there's evening. And that's the beauty of it because it's not just a bohemian uh, transcendent faith where, you know, let's just fly into the heavens and do whatever we feel like. That's not the power of Yiddishkeit. The power of Yiddishkeit is there's, there are concrete structures, we call them halacha. But if they become traps, they are tools to transcendence. Structure is here to allow you to transcend structure, not to worship structures. And it's a very subtle distinction. When structure starts becoming the target of worship, it's not anymore about God. It's sometimes about my OCD. Structure is here to... Structure is the tool to touch that which transcends structure. Because you have to work through structure. If not, it becomes just chaos and irresponsible. It's an exercise like Woodstock, no boundaries. And whenever there's no boundaries, everybody loses. We live in a world where you need boundaries. It's respect. You need respect. But the boundaries are here to be able to touch something that transcends boundaries. And that's a very, very subtle and delicate level of awareness. Because there are are people who hate structure, artists, bohemians, and there are people who love structure because they are, uh, (laughs) what's the word? You know, they're just very, they love everything perfect and predictable. They're control freaks. And you see that certain people, somebody once told me, he said, I became a Baltruva because I needed a religious justification for being OCD. (laughs) I said, I love the self-awareness. But he understood. He has a problem, and he loves halacha, because he just tells you, I needed somebody to tell me what to do every second. And the worst thing you can do is sit down on my seat and show. If you sit down on my seat and show, you know, people, they lose it. They lose it. They want to convert. I remember I once went to a show. I sat down in somebody's seat, and there was like a crisis. There had to be a board meeting. 
because somebody sat down in your seat. Now I understand some people really need structure. And the truth is, you know, a person who's suffering from Asperger's syndrome, right? Sometimes if you shake that up, it could be very, very, very difficult and sensitive. But we have to realize we have limitations and not turn them into gods. We all have limitations. That's fine. But don't worship it. <laughs> don't turn it into God. And therefore, you have uh, the flexibility to be able to say, you know what? It's not the end of the world when my structure was shaken up. Amazing. Well, people who transcend you. structure, people who transcend structure, the artists among us have to have the courage to say, and now God wants structure. <laughs> You know, it's, and you know what? In Kabbalah, in Chabad Hasidism, there's a beautiful insight. There's something called vessels, and there's something called energy. Oir and Keli. Energy is like artistic infinity. Vessels, containers, are finite structures. Which one reflects God? Light or vessels? So the Alter Rebbe writes, God is neither light or neither vessel. He's not infinite and he's not finite. So how do you find God? He said it's in the fusion between infinity and finiteness that you're forced to transcend both of them. And that's where you find God. And that brings it back to the beginning, the, the fusion between our self-awareness, our spiritual goals. That's yeah. where real spirituality is. That's yeah, yeah. You don't, real spirituality, you don't amputate anything. You don't get rid of anything. You don't say, part of me doesn't matter. Incredible. I was told that this was supposed to be a half an hour. So yeah, yeah, get, yeah. So I guess right. nobody Go here on, stuck to right. structure. Nobody here stuck to structure. The problem yeah. is, you're a bohemian and I'm a bohemian. We need somebody <laughs> of structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the structured people, they cut things brutally. Yeah, Sometimes yeah, you need that, off, right? especially with me. Uh, I would say great. double speed was created for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very incredible. Good. We hopefully we could uh, get to do this again sometime. But Amen. Time, everybody, go to yeshiva.net. Amazing. The the yeshiva.net. The yeshiva.net. The the It's <laughs> a great name. <laughs> you know, with websites, if you don't get every letter right, you know. <laughs> The intentions yeah. don't matter. You need the structure. <laughs> That's yes. like halacha. If you miss out a dot or you miss out a letter, you're not getting to the website. So you see from here that sometimes, you know, God is in the details, but not yeah. only in the details. Amazing. Uh, so it's incredible. I think it's a great discuss for the entire Instagram that Rabbi Waiwai, we had you on, uh, on Instagram Live. Thank you. Um, thank you. My pleasure. My honor. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you that, for your questions. Yeah, thank you for joining and uh, keep sending in the questions because we're going we're gonna to do this again. Hopefully, we'll make it happen. Um, and thank you, Rabbi Moshe. Good stuff. Thank you, Rabbi. Great discuss. All the best. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.